Welcome to A Handful of Hope, where we bring you heart-to-heart conversations with heart-centered people. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another edition of A Handful of Hope. I am so happy and grateful to have Maria Ross with us here today, who is the founder of brand consultancy Red Slice and believes cash flow, creativity, and compassion are not mutually exclusive. She advises entrepreneurs and fast growth businesses on building irresistible brand stories and messaging to better connect with customers. Maria has authored multiple books, including her most recent book, The Empathy Edge. Maria understands the power of empathy on the brand and personal levels. In 2008, shortly after launching her business, she suffered a ruptured brain aneurysm that almost killed her and inspired her memoir, Rebooting My Brain. She has appeared in many media outlets, including MSNBC, NPR, and Forbes, spoken to audiences ranging from the New York Times to blog her, and has written for numerous media outlets, including entrepreneur.com. She lives in the San Francisco Bay Area with her husband, young son, and frisky mutt. Maria, welcome, and thank you so very much for being here. Thanks for having me, Jesse. I'm excited to chat with you. Frisky mutt. What is the frisky mutt's name? (laughs) Frisky Mutt is Eddie. He's a black lab mutt mix. He's only about 40 pounds and he's 13 years old, but he's still very frisky. So, That's so great. we love him. He was our oldest. So he, he was, was our oldest child. Yes. Have you had him since he was a puppy? <laughs> well, we rescued him and he, his age was unknown, but it was about 10 months, 11 months when we adopted him. So you've had him yeah. since he was a baby then. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Eddie, the Frisky Mutt. <laughs> Maria, I'm really looking forward to chatting with you about empathy. And we were talking beforehand about, I think one of the challenges with empathy right now is there's so much that goes along. And that's so much that needs to be extended to mm-hmm. virtually every single sector of society. Mm-hmm. And cr- private conversations I've had with folks, I, I hear them wanting to be more empathetic but they're struggling to get there because they're also wrestling with their own frustrations or their own perceptions of how things should or should not be. Mm-hmm. I guess the place maybe to start with is how, first of all, I think maybe defining empathy, just so we're really clear on what that is. And then how do we begin to really, for those of us who are wanting to allow it to be some form of true north for us, mm-hmm. how do we begin to turn to that and allow it and allow ourselves to access that? So empathy is an interesting word because if you talk to different people, you'll get slightly different definitions. When I was researching the book, The Empathy Edge, everyone I interviewed had a slightly different definition of empathy. And even the dictionary definition has changed over time. And so I think what what we do know about empathy in modern times from psychology is that there's sort of two branches to empathy. There's cognitive empathy, which is being able to see things from another person's perspective. And then there's affective empathy, which is feeling the emotions that they're feeling. And especially in the work context, as an example, we get caught up on that and think, well, you know, I can't be crying alongside somebody in a corner uh, all the time at work. That's just not a productive or professional way to work. But if we look at it more in terms of perspective taking and what President Barack Obama called, you know, seeing the world from another person's point of view or stepping into their shoes, it doesn't mean you have to feel what they're feeling. It, it may result in that because if you if you do that really well, you might 
actually be able to envision yourself in that situation and it could move you or anger you or provoke you or whatever. But um, the, the thing that people feel better about <laughs> in embracing empathy, especially people that are not overly emotional, is that you can look at it as a method of perspective taking, a right. method of information gathering. Let me be able to see your point of view and let that be part of the information I use to take action, make a decision, decide something, say something, communicate something. And if you do it that way, it will often be, that action will often be perceived as what I, what I call the action part of it, which is compassion. So for me and from some definitions I found when I was researching, compassion is empathy and action. Because um, you can be very empathetic, but if you do nothing with that, you can't change the world. You can't find common ground. You can't um, have good relationships with people at work or in your life um, or with your neighbors or your community. So it, it frees us a little bit to look at it in terms of an, a way of perspective taking. And, it, and there's a lot you have to do about yourself before you're able to adopt another person's point of view. I want to be very clear on what empathy is not, and it's not agreeing with somebody. You can be extremely empathetic and have a constructive conversation with someone who vehemently disagrees with you. So this notion that if you're empathetic, you're going to roll over or you're going to be submissive or you're going to lose sight of your own values is nonsense because it, it's, an, again, it's a method of perspective taking and seeing things from another person's point of view. It doesn't mean in the end you have to agree with them or they have to agree with you, but in most situations, you can at least understand where the other person is coming from. And you can either have a constructive debate where you both walk away still believing what you believe, but now you have a better understanding of how that person and why that person believes what they do. Or you can find common ground and build a mutually productive solution together. And that's often, for example, in the work context. If you are empathetic with someone who's disagreeing with the way you want to pursue a project or some, the way someone wants to get to success, if you can, if you can lose the defensiveness and lose the, like, I'm right and you're wrong, and just try to understand the intention and why someone has that point of view, you can often find a kernel of common ground to then build from and say, oh, like where we agree is here. So maybe it's not my way and it's not your way, it's another way. How do we, how do we get there? <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I love the in the next 10 minutes common ground and yeah. I, I asked how do we get there because uh, uh, my observation being on social media just i'm going to mm -hmm. generalize social media for a moment mm -hmm. is social media has and I, I and i want to start by saying i'm extremely grateful for social media because it's afforded us the opportunity to meet and connect with one another and observe our lives and and I, I've met so many incredible people I would have never met otherwise. You don't have to justify. I know where this okay. is going. <laughs> <laughs> Before I say my but. Right, right. But I also have seen it become, in its many ways, it's almost this vehicle for magnifying surface level judgments or reactions. And it's, it's you're this or that. And, it, and, mm -hmm. and so I see that good versus evil, right versus wrong. Mm -hmm. and, and especially like, I feel like that right versus wrong is a really tricky one because mm -hmm. then we start to get so much of a, 
I feel like those debates often escalate because we it's feel- It's judgmental. Yes, yes. And mm -hmm. so we have this almost absence of feeling significant or important mm -hmm. in our own life. And so we gain massive significance, not by being necessarily right, but by more making somebody else wrong. It mm -hmm. becomes this, this, this play where we can maybe ascertain some sort of power position on them or you mm -hmm. know, way of like that. Yeah. So I, I, oh, there's my butt. So how do we get to that? How do we get to that empathy piece where we're able yeah. to see that common ground when we are when there are so many of us that are struggling mm -hmm. with finding the way through the emotional surface, which becomes almost like a, a, a punching boxing match, it seems. Yeah, there's so many things to unpack in that. And and what you've described is the reason why my husband is not on social media at all. <laughs> <laughs> and he doesn't care. Um, but I think, well, there's a few things there. Number one is social media is its own construct. And the problem is people feel like they can lose their humanity there, that they are shielded from it, that they can say whatever they want, which is a good thing when they're saying something positive and constructive, right? Um, but it's also very reactionary. And you're talking to someone who has been known to pop off on social media. Like I, I am very hot-headed. I'm Italian and I'm a redhead and I have a very short fuse and I have been known to just speak from the gut, right? And just automatically like, you're an idiot, here's why. Like, but social media is a mirage. Like it fools us into thinking that that's how humanity actually operates. And it's not like most, I would guess, I have not done a research study, but I would guess 90% of the people who present themselves on social media would not present themselves that way in real life. And I'm talking when they're over emotional, when they're being judgmental, not necessarily that there's inauthentic people all over social media, but especially when you see anger and judgment and defensiveness, that's probably not a reaction they would have if they were having that debate face to face with somebody. Now it might be, I'm not, you know, again, I'm not an expert on that, but I think it, this is what I've personally found actually in the last year is realizing that social media is not, in many ways, it is a reflection of the majority of society, but in many ways it is not. Because then if you actually peel that back and you look at those people's actions, you look at um, how they would interact with someone in a, in a face-to-face -face setting, it might be different. That said, I also think it's this made up construct because the rules of empathy, there's, there's no, there's no incentive for empathy there because sure. the attention goes to the people who incite the intention, the attention goes to the people who provoke or who have the witty comeback or who slam someone in social media. That's where the, that's where the attention follows. And so there's no, there's no reward for empathy in social media. <laughs> And so most people don't show it because they, they use it as an outlet for their own anger and frustration because they don't feel people are being empathetic to them and thus the vicious cycle, right? So I, I don't know that I've given up hope yet on all humanity because of what I see on social media, because you will find if you take a social media detox for a week, and there have been studies, I cannot cite specific ones right now, but I'm sure if people Google them, they can find them where psychologists have shown the happiness and well-being and mental health levels of people have increased when they have stopped using social media. So 
that's worrying, right? Like that social media is dragging us down into thinking this is how everyone acts when that's actually not the reality. Now that said, that doesn't mean that there are not racists in the world or misogynists or um, just vile people who spread their hate and their division on social media. It's, you know, there are world leaders who do that. But um, for, for most individuals, even if you differ on politics or social issues or whatever, if we modeled and rewarded empathy more, and for many of us, we haven't seen models of it, so we don't even know what that looks like, right? We, we don't even know how to debate civilly, right? And I, I'll, I'll give you an example just for myself, a very personal example. But you know, as I was researching the book and researching like some habits and practices you can put into practice to strengthen your own empathy, which we can talk about for sure, um, I've gone back to those, especially with COVID and the lockdown and the chaos. And because again, I'm not, I, I don't always default to those things. But if you think about like a political issue that you really feel strongly about, like for me, it's it's common sense gun control, right? Um, I actually have done a lot of work to try to understand why people on the quote unquote other side feel the way they do. And I actually can understand what got some of them there. Like when I actually dig in to find past the like, you're a jerk or you're ignorant or blah, blah, blah. When you actually get to like why people feel the way they feel about their right to have a gun, whether I, again, I vehemently disagree with a lot of it but at least I can understand why they feel that way. Still doesn't mean I have to agree. Still doesn't mean I won't continue to fight and lobby for <laughs> common sense gun control, but at least I can see them as human. Mm. And I can see that there's a problem they're trying to solve and they truly believe this is the only way to solve it. Um, now, I wouldn't say that I would extend that as far to white supremacists or you know other groups that I like viscerally disagree with. But my point being, there are issues where you think it's very black and white and you can still be empathetic, still hold your ground, still disagree, but go, okay, like I, I, I get where those people are coming from. I get why they think, I, I'm not just necessarily writing them all off as, well, they're just dumb, right? Which is our default. And that's what social media encourages us to do. So going back to your original question of, you know, so where do we start? I think we have to start with ourselves. Like that's the thing is, and that's what I've learned is that you have to have your own presence and your own, your own sense of self and be confident in where you stand on something to be confident enough to be curious and ask questions. Why do you feel that way? What, what brought you to that conclusion? Why do you think that's a good way to manage the project? Why do you think that's a good way to increase sales? Why do you think that's a good way to, um, you know, impact our culture? Whatever, whatever it, it is, it's being able to have the presence, because I've noticed I'm the least empathetic when I'm under stress and I'm overwhelmed by my own stuff, right? My own scripts in my head, my own stress. I don't have room to even get curious about the other person's opinion or perspective or point of view. So we start with ourselves. We start with shoring ourselves up and our own self-confidence and our own presence and our own stress management so that we can then be that sort of like grace under pressure example. Even if someone is like railing on us, we can at least be like, okay, so what I'm hearing 
is this, that, and the other thing. And then maybe bringing that person down a little bit and like getting them to calm down a little bit to then be able to have a productive conversation. But, you know, often what I hear when I'm talking about the book is like, what do you do when the other person's not being empathetic? And I'm like, but you can't, we can't control it's it's the same old story right we can only yeah. control ourselves you can't control the other person but you can act in a way that impacts the outcome of that relationship by being by by you being aware of your of practicing empathy and strengthening your own empathy and then if the other person is going to continue to just spin out of control then you know at least you've done all you can do and maybe that person feels a little bit more seen heard and valued and might then at least be a little open to seeing your side of the story. But it's not, it's not your job to make someone else be empathetic. It's your job to try to ground yourself enough so you can be empathetic. Long-winded answer, but. Oh, no, I, I, absolutely <laughs> love, I absolutely love that. And there's a million different things now I want to ask you about with it. And an <laughs> effort to try to keep, keep it concise so because we can get the most out of this. I have my curious, the thing that popped to mind was this responsibility of self. I read something not that long ago where, and this comes with a disclaimer too. I recognize oftentimes, and it seems like we're in a culture right now where we like to, we like to take statistics and have, what is that word? Creative interpretation of them mm-hmm. at times, depending on what, what story we're trying to tell. So I, I'm not sure if this is a creative interpretation, but I read something that they <laughs> said that, in the United States, one in two Americans at some juncture in their lifetime is going to take some sort of antidepressant, anti-anxiety medication, and that the antidepressant, anti-anxiety medication is something like $150 billion with a B industry. And this was pre-COVID. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering, <clears throat> and this is where my wondering goes. This isn't a question. It's just an out loud wondering. I guess we can kind of maybe play in that space. The responsibility starts with self, yet so many of us are struggling to find that space of how do I even manage my own stress, <clears throat> my own anxiety, whatnot, let alone get to a space to where, I'll, I'll give, you know, here, here's an example. When, we, when somebody cuts us off on the freeway, Right now, it feels full disclaimer. It feels really good in the moment for me to be pissed off at that person. Totally understand. Blame them for everything. Blame them for everything. <laughs> they are the reason why. Then if lay they, on your horn. Yes, yeah, that's if, me. If yeah. My next meeting doesn't go well. My next call doesn't go well. You know all mm-hmm. these different things and concoct all these stories about them. But I also know I have this story that I remind myself of every time when I can get out of that. Which was, I remember when I was in fourth grade, and my teacher telling me the story about he had this he had these coins that if you were had good behavior he'd let you play with the coins and the story with his coins that made him so special is he had collected all these coins and he was at work one day and he got a phone call that said his house was on fire he ran out of the classroom didn't say anything jumped in his car and he said he drove 100 miles an hour to try to get home to salvage whatever he could and i remember him saying he said it was, it was so unsafe it was so irresponsible I wasn't thinking about anything else. All I was thinking about was getting home, making sure my wife, my dogs and were safe and I could save whatever he could. His wife was okay. The dogs were okay. One of the only things he was able to salvage from this house was his coins. And when I am being more present to myself and that person cuts me off, I will say, my gosh, maybe this time out their house is on fire. 
But I wrestle with also selfishly wanting that instant, well, mm-hmm. screw you. Mm-hmm. you know, and, and even though I know that if I express that empathy for them in that moment, it serves me much more greatly long-term. Mm-hmm. But I'm wrestling with that short-term emotional hit that comes with being angry or frustrated. And I find mm-hmm. that that often comes at a time where I'm feeling more stressed out or more overwhelmed, or I'm dealing with something that I feel is out of my control. So I guess this is a long way of wondering now that especially given context of where we are right now with, with COVID or with uh, in the United States, it's the time this recording is late August of 2020. We're still mm-hmm. dealing with COVID. There's a lot of political division right now. Mm-hmm. You know, there's in California, you and I were talking beforehand, half the state's on fire. Mm-hmm. So we have all these emotions stirred up. We have access to things like anger, frustration, where we can project externally. And it sometimes is a much more potent emotional hit. How do we begin to train ourselves to opt for that house? Maybe, gosh, maybe they just found out their house is on fire perspective. So I just want to preface this with, I'm not a psychologist. Yes, <laughs> so yes, yes, yes. I just want to be clear, you know, not a yeah. doctor. Um, but I have been reading a lot about the Dalai Lama and his leadership style. I've been reading a book called A Force for Good. And, and as a lifelong Catholic, Buddhism really appeals to me. And number one, that sense of that many mindfulness experts have been talking about for decades is that if we worked on our mindfulness as a, as a human race, we would actually have a better society because if everybody individually was content from the inside out, we would get rid of a lot of the problems we have in our society. So, um, and I firmly believe that. And in the book, I talk about practicing presence as the num- as the first trait on like getting strengthening your own empathy as a leader or as an individual is you've got to be centered. You've got to be grounded, whatever that means to you, right? It doesn't mean going to a yoga retreat for seven days. It could mean just like a few deep breaths. It could mean, you know, enjoying a cup of coffee without any screen time in the morning. It could be a mantra you repeat in the morning. It could be meditation. It could be jogging. It could be knitting, whatever it is that sort of grounds you in the present, right? Mm. Because so often we're, we're thinking about the past and the future in the moment. And that's what's like, you know, sort of like when you're, when your car, it gets gunked up. <laughs> that's what gunks up your, yeah. your soul, your, your thought processes. Right. So, um, it's just funny. You asked me this question because I struggle with that all the time. And what I have been learning is number one, you can't squelch anger. Like you cannot do that. And this comes from someone who's, you know, raising a small human and I'm trying to help him be emotionally literate and intelligent and you see what happens if you let anger go unchecked, but you can also unfortunately see what happens if you do, if you make it suppress itself. So mm. we can't suppress that anger or that upset or that indignation. Like we have to let it move through our body somehow. And I would suspect that if you spoke to a mindfulness expert, they would try to recommend actions or mantras or something. So you can, you, you can let that anger move through you and be heard right? It doesn't mean you bottle it and you're like, everything's fine. Like that's the path to sociopathy, right? (laughs) We don't want to do that. So um, I think it's just, I mean, number one, what you're describing about the like finding an alternate explanation for someone's behavior that 
annoys you or makes you mad is very similar to cognitive behavioral therapy, um, which I, I did as part of my recovery from a near fatal brain aneurysm years ago. And that actually helped me with a lot of like the emotional derailment that my injury caused with my brain, right? So it was like, okay, take a step back. What could be an alternate, you know, how are you feeling? Check in like, yeah, I'm angry. I'm mad. I'm pissed off. What could be an alternate explanation for what's happening in front of you? And just even being able to play out those alternate explanations can often calm your body down, right? It, again, it doesn't mean you're squelching your anger, but it can mean like it sort of gets you out of the red zone, right? Yeah. So if, yeah. like what you're saying, like you, it sounds like your mantra is the like, maybe the person's house is on fire. Like I'm pissed off, but maybe they genuinely have an emergency they need to get to. And even though like, there's part of your brain going, no, they're just being a jerk. <laughs> You're like fighting with yourself. But, but I think it's important that we say that empathy is not about not ever feeling those negative feelings. It's feeling those feelings, but then having enough space to, to try to understand the other person's point of view. Even the hardest is when they're not understanding your point of view, right? Mm. And, and finding a way to have an outlet for that anger and that frustration that's not at the other person. Right. So it could be you, you go boxing, you go running, you scream into a pillow when you get home, what, you know, whatever those things are. And I think to be, be empathetic to yourself and understand and be like, it's okay that that made me angry. Like I, I understand Jesse talking to Jesse, why you're angry right now. I get it. I totally get it. And you, you have every right to be angry that that guy cut you off in traffic. So it's, it's sort of giving yourself permission to feel that thing, but then letting your brain take over like the, you know, not, what do they call it? Like not the lizard brain, the reactionary yeah. brain, yeah. but the, the higher order brain to take over and be like, what could be an alternate explanation for this person? Or let me, you know, if it's not the situation in traffic, but a situation where you're disagreeing with somebody is let me ask them. Like, tell me more about that. Tell me why you believe that without me cutting you off funny that you're talking about traffic, but without me, you know, trying to interject, because that's what happens is we think we're having these debates with people that we disagree with, but we're not. We're asking baiting questions so that we can then let them say three words and then go, oh my God, I can't believe you're saying that because here's why that's wrong. Like, that's what we do. We don't have debate. Like, and I will admit to you, like, I'm a horrible debater. I should have like joined a debate society or something to learn how to properly debate with people. But, um, but we say we're having these conversations and we're not. We're just, we're just waiting for our chance to cut them off and prove them wrong. You mentioned some empathy habits and simple little habits and practices. I was hoping maybe you could share a couple of those with us. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, one I have already mentioned, which is this idea of practicing presence. Oh. So whatever is going to ground you, if you're going into maybe a difficult meeting, or you're going into a difficult situation, or you're in the difficult situation, can you find a way to, you know, you can physically feel when your head starts to spin out of control, right? With the, like the indignation and the defensiveness and whatever, it's almost like a, it, it's not almost, it is a physical reaction that you have. So when you start, recognize that in your own body of like where you're feeling it and try to bring yourself back down. And that could be, like I said, it could be taking a few deep breaths before a hard conversation that you're going to have. It could be adopting a, a daily meditation practice, 10 minutes a day to sort of ground your day. It could be um, taking a walk, 
Um, I know a lot of people that have walking meetings where they are, you know, so because it helps them think yeah. their body can get their frustration out as they're walking. You know, sometimes you walk faster, um, but there's like a, a, there's a built in outlet there to keep you present to the situation, because the more that you spin about what happened before or what's going to happen or what am I going to say next? You're not in the moment. And empathy requires you to be in the moment, to be able to see the other person's point of view, to be able to read their body language, to be able to hear the rationale behind their words. Like you have to be paying attention and you can't pay attention unless you are practicing presence. The other thing I kind of alluded to before is rather than instant defensiveness, and again, raising my hand, totally guilty of this, <laughs> is to practice that investigative journalism. Get curious. So your first reaction to someone's stance on something at work or personally is not, you're an idiot. It's not, here's why I'm right, you're wrong. It's give yourself like 10 minutes to just be like, tell me more about that. Tell me more about why you think that and what, what causes that belief? What does success look like to you? Um, the, if you can think about like the best managers and leaders you've ever had, you might, through that lens, you might realize that they probably asked you more questions than they gave you advice. You know what I mean? Because yeah. then when they ask, when you ask someone questions and you find out, you actually can get to know what their point of view is. You don't have to guess. So, um, I think that, that's an important one. Another really important one is to, um, explore with your imagination. So I'm, I'm, I'm an actress in my spare time. I do like independent film and theater and voiceover. And there's no better playground for empathy than theater or film. And so make yourself read more, watch more documentaries about people who are not like you. Hmm. Um, listen to music from other cultures and find out the stories behind them. So explore with your imagination, even if you're not necessarily walking in someone's shoes, practice the art of imagining what life would be like for somebody because then you can do it in the everyday situations it's like it's like working out right like you just you're practicing that muscle of like being curious and finding out what's going on for somebody else and um like i know recently with everything that's been going on with the calls for for social justice and social equality and racial equality is i'm spending a lot of time doing a lot of reading i'm doing a lot of reading of blogs and books and listening to people and having conversations. So I can just hear their experiences, experiences that for, for, of people that are not living my life. And that's enabling me to understand their point of view. Now, that's a muscle you can flex anytime you want so that it's sort of like when it's game time and you need it, you can, you can call on it and it'll be like muscle memory. So read more books, see more theater when we're allowed to go to theaters, <laughs> watch more documentaries, watch more movies, um, and explore music you may not have normally listened to. And just get used to exploring with your imagination. Um, and I think the third one that's really important is to, is to when you can, it's not always possible, but when you can get in the trenches. So I'm specifically talking about a work context, but you know, we've all seen investigative reporters who have sort of like lived life on the street as a homeless person for a month to see what it was like, or, or people that have donned a, a, a fat suit to see what life is like as an obese person walking around. That's not practical for many of us to do something like that, but where you can try to get into the trenches. So from a work context, if you're in marketing, for example, get on a sales call 
with a sales rep, be a fly on the wall and listen to what, what the interaction is like and what customers are expressing. And then understand what a day in the life of the sales reps that you support is like. And then you can have a better empathy towards that person. So whenever you're able to get into the trenches and even if it's like an hour on the customer support line, if you're able to, you know, instead of passing judgment about how bad customer support is, like as a CEO, get on the line for an hour and see what they're dealing with. Um, and I think that's a really, really good practice, again, to strengthen that muscle so that you start to like opt into that way of being. So eventually you don't have to think about it. You know, if you, if you, if you start practicing presence, it's called practice for a reason. A mindfulness expert told me that, that I interviewed for the book is it's going to feel forced at first. And that's okay because any new habit feels forced at first. And if you talk to psychologists that work with um, very severely autistic children who lack empathy, that's exactly what they do is they give them a list of rote activities to do in their interactions with other people that are very similar to what I talked about, about taking deep breaths or asking questions or doing things like that. And so those kids are only doing those things at first because someone's telling them to do that. But the more they do it, the more their feedback from the world changes and they like what they're experiencing and they want to do more. And then um, eventually it starts to become part of their standard operating practice. And that's what we need to do, just like working out at a gym. Maria, you're making this so hard for me to wrap this up because I just <laughs> I have 80, 85 more questions now. I really want to. <laughs> we'll do a part two. Yeah, yeah. I think we might need to do like five parts to this, but I find this so wildly fascinating. And you had, you had said something earlier about the mindfulness piece. And I, I just, I share that same belief that I feel like we're at any given time only a generation away if we could just so many of our problems, it seems, are perceptual problems, right? Mm -hmm. And that if we could just do that deeper work there, so mm -hmm. much has changed. So before I ask my final question, where can people find you online? So they can go to my main site, which is red-slice.com, and they can find out all about me, read my blog, sign up for my email list. That would be wonderful. I've got some freebies on there, and they can get access to the books there as well. As well. Um, the Empathy Edge is available on Amazon. and um, local bookseller sites, however you're getting your books these days in um, audiobook and uh, Kindle as well. And um, they can find me on Instagram at Red Slice Maria. They can find me on Twitter at Red Slice. And they can find me on LinkedIn, Maria J. Ross. And I do have, I still currently have a Facebook business page. It's um, facebook.com slash Red Slice. They can find me there. Maria, this has been so amazing, and there's been so many. Like I said, I have at least eighty-five more questions, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> just go with one. You mentioned that you're raising a young human right now, mm -hmm. and I'm wondering, has there, what has, what is the most powerful, important, you know, you can choose another word if those aren't good words, but what is the most powerful, important lesson that he has taught you about empathy? Oh my God, <laughs> we, we are going to need a five part. Of <laughs> um, I, I think that when you are trying to teach someone to access their empathy, it, it comes to the forefront. Like that's, that's the whole reason I wrote the book was because I, he was two and a half during the 2016 presidential election. And I was horrified by the behaviors I was seeing 
And I thought, what's the point of him being in preschool and me reading him books about sharing and words are not for hurting if this was what the adulthood that lay before him was all about. So I, I wrote the book for him and I'm constantly trying to work with him on empathy because you, you do like, and he's, he's six, he's in the prime time of lack of empathy. They're very, uh, they're very all about ego and self at this stage. So I'm learning what can happen if we don't raise our kids intentionally helping them understand empathy. Like you take that behavior and you look at it being unchecked over a person's lifetime and it's a scary thought. So I think the fact that we have to be, it, it, your kid's not necessarily going to be naturally empathetic. I mean, they probably have a tendency for that, but you also need to model it. You need to like talk to them about like, what do you think that person is feeling? And when you said that mean thing, what do you think that felt like? Like get them to start thinking empathetically. There's lots of things happening in the world that people are doing with young people. I mentioned some in my book about them trying to teach kids to flex that empathy muscle at a very early age so they don't even think about it anymore, right? Um, and so for me, it's also about when I'm empathetic with him, we get a positive result, hmm. like every time. But sometimes I don't have the patience. Sometimes I just want compliance. Sometimes, sometimes, sometimes. But whenever I take the time to be empathetic, even in the discipline, even in the whatever, I always get a positive result. And I think that's the biggest thing I'm learning is that, you know, for any skeptics listening, it works. Like, mm -hmm. even if you selfishly are just like, not that it works that you get what you want, but it works in terms of more peace in your household or in your office and, you know, more productivity and more happiness and more. So I'm learning that I have to take a step back and try to see things from his point of view and then adapt my mode of discipline or communication to seeing the world through a six-year-old's eyes, which is very different. There's a lot that they don't understand. The world seems like a very big, scary place. I mean, our backyard probably looks huge to him and it's, <laughs> it's tiny. So you just have to keep remembering. And I think that that is also bleeding over into my adult relationships as well, in that when I can really try to to calm down and take time and see someone else's point of view, the result is always a good one. I, I, would, I would never say, I can never say that I have been empathetic with someone and regretted that I had. My goodness, everyone, are you gonna wanna rewatch and re-listen this? This is, I think, such a fascinating and insightful conversation, not just in the human behavior, and empathy, but really getting at the crux of who we are and why we do what we do. Maria opened up an amazing opportunity right from the beginning for us to go into self-exploration and invited us to step in and see the world from somebody else's shoes. Easier said than done, right? When we're all wrestling with our own little inner <laughs> dialogues of which you have both two people here who will raise their hands and be the first to say that they wrestle with it themselves. Yet the opportunities there it presents itself to recognize that what we see on social media may not present the, represent the majority of how people communicate. And that while so many may be adamant about staying at the surface and being keyboard warriors throwing jab after jab, maybe even a hand grenade or two, and their verbal barrages that we might see, that the opportunity to extend and express empathy for one another outside of social media, whether it's personally, professionally, in your workplace or in your community, or just in your home, 
is there. And then in so doing, I, I, gosh, I love that she's never had, it, it's never meant resolution without being empathy with her and her six-year-old. And I, you know, I often adopt this perspective of the world that we're all just wounded children running around, that we're all just, you know, we call ourselves adults, but really it's yeah, such a misindicator, right? But we're really just these big kids. I, so if I can interrupt you yes. one second, I have to tell you a funny story about that. So quickly, yes. my, my son asked me the other day at the breakfast table what I wanted to be when I grow up. And I said, but I'm already, I'm, or he said, what, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, but I already am grown up. And he said, mommy, you're, you're a parent. You're not a grown up. And I thought that was so spot on. And I just, I couldn't stop laughing. Like, I'm like, honey, you're right. You're right. I'm a parent, but I'm not a grown up. <laughs> kids are so freaking smart. They really are. Like, He's it, on to me. He's yeah, on to me. Yeah. <laughs> just unlearn so much of our adultness and just get back to these basics of a kid and just having that. And I think, you know, whether you play with that piece of, of, of addressing the idea of the driver cutting you off as being running to, because they have kind of a fire, that empathy is compassion and action. Maria gave us so many great examples of how we could begin to develop our own empathetic practices in our life, how we could begin to use it, how we could begin to demonstrate it, how we can be able to observe it, just inviting ourselves to start to ask questions and be wildly curious about the life of another recognizing that while we may make one decision about somebody else and why they do what they do, and in so doing, that in turn produces whatever emotional response or how we experience them, invite ourselves to be curious because in that curiosity, we'll invite other possibilities of why they may do what they do, why they may believe what they believe, why they may say what they say, and why they may just frustrate us to no end. And in that exploration of self, which I really love that she went there, is in that exploration of self, it gives a space to start to extend more empathy to others. It's almost like to really master the empathy or even if we can use that term in relation to it, we must first learn to be empathetic to ourselves. And what a beautiful world that would be is if we could all learn to just meet ourselves with a little more grace, compassion, and empathy. Maria, I, like I said, I had 85, 86, and that's probably a conservative estimate more questions. <laughs> and this has been such an absolute gift today. Thank you so very much for making the time and being here and sharing so generously with us. This was incredible. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me and, and allowing us space to talk about this. It's so important right now. Absolutely. It's, it's, gosh, it is so important. And it's something that I think this is going to be one of the most important dialogues that we can develop ongoing. All right, everybody, we will see you next time on another edition of A Handful of Hope. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. If you're finding value in these conversations, please rate and review on Apple, Google, Stitcher, or wherever your favorite place is to listen to.